2013, there was a movie that came out called Man of Steel. And Man of Steel is an origin story for Superman. Um, there's a scene in that movie where Superman's talking with Lois Lane, and, and Lois asks him, what does the S on your um, chest stand for? And he said, well, it's not really an S. What it is, is the Kryptonian symbol for hope. And that was his people's symbol for hope, and that's why he wore that, because it was to remind him of his people and remind him of hope. We're in sort of the ending stages of football season right now. Um, when there's a start of football season, whether you follow college football or the NFL, there's a lot of hope that you have for your team, right? Like, this is our year. This is the year we're going to win the championship. We're going to make the Super Bowl. We're going to make the playoffs. I don't know. But there's a lot of hope at the beginning of football season, and then usually by halfway through, about half of us, our hopes have been dashed. Um, but at the beginning of the season, there's a lot of hope. And then a picture of the manger often inspires hope in us, right? This is Christmas, and this is the time that we think about the birth of Christ really more than any other time in the, in the year. Um, that fills us with hope. But I want to show you another picture that also fills us with hope that you might not have seen as much of before, but that's a picture of the manger with the shadow of the cross on it. And that also gives us a lot of hope, and that's what we're talking about this morning. Let's think about, for a few minutes, the birth of Jesus, because birth is something that happens to, to everyone, except for, except for Adam and Eve. They were created, but, um, you know, directly without being born, but everybody else that has lived since then has been born. We've literally had billions of births in the history of the world. On November 15th of this year, we just hit 8 billion people for a population on the planet Earth. On November 15th, we hit 8 billion. In all of history, uh, historians um, estimate there's been probably around 100 billion people that have lived. So about 100 billion births that have happened since the beginning of the world. So if everybody except for Adam and Eve, everybody after that was, was born, and there's been around 100 billion births, why is the birth of this one man, Jesus, so special? Why is it something that is so di um, different and unique and something that we celebrate? What makes it that way? Why is it, why is it not just another birth? Well, one reason that's kind of obvious, right, is because of who he is. We know Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of the world, that makes it unique. But we also have a number of prophecies about his birth that were very specific to his birth. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read, All right, then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Even the place of his birth was prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. So if we look at some of these prophecies of Christ's birth, there are between 7 and 10 
specific prophecies regarding Christ's birth. It, it depends on, the, on what you consider a prophecy of Christ's birth, and, and there's a couple of them that are, that are questionable whether or not it's actually specifically talking about his birth or, or just who the Messiah would be or his life in general. But 7 to 10 prophecies about the birth of the Messiah. If we take just eight of those prophecies, there was a mathematics and astronomy professor by the name of Peter W. Stoner, and he calculated the chances that just eight of those prophecies would be fulfilled in one person. And the, and the odds for that came out to be about 1 in 10 to the 17th power chance. So 1 was 17 zeros after it, or 100 quintillion, and that's what that number looks like, 100 quintillion. So it's a 1 in 100 quintillion chance that one person would be able to fulfill eight of those prophecies. He explained it this way, illustrated it this way. Suppose all of the state of Texas was covered two feet deep in a layer of silver dollars, and one coin was marked with a red dot. Now, Texas is 268,596 square miles, so it's around 100 trillion half, um, silver dollars. Then, if we take a man, blindfold him, drop him off, tell him to walk wherever he wants, but he must pick up the right coin on the first try. That's about how likely it would be that he would be able to do it. It's about the same um, chance, one in 100 quintillion, that he would be able to do that as there is a chance of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So you can see that fulfilling those prophecies was a huge deal and makes it a very unique situation, a very unique birth. Not only were there a number of prophecies surrounding the birth of Christ, there was a huge announcement when it happened, right? We know that the angels announced the birth of Christ. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. So there's shepherds and they're shepherding. Verse 9, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. Yeah, I could see where you'd be terrified by that. All of a sudden, you're doing your shepherd thing, and this angel appears to you. You can imagine a bright light, and all of a sudden, it's this brilliant angel there. What is going on? Verse 10, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. So he's telling them about the birth of this person that is there nearby announcing a birth of who most people would have thought was just a regular common person, not born to a royal person, not born to a king, not someone important, not an important family just a normal person. And then suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. That's a, quite an announcement for the birth of somebody. I don't see that happening every day to you. In fact, we don't have that recorded for anybody else in all of history, that there was that kind of an announcement that happened by angels coming from heaven. Um, in this glorious display when this person was born. 
Then after that, shepherds decided, well, they're going to go visit this baby that they were just told about. I mean, it, wouldn't you? You were just, just visited by this whole group of angels, this miraculous thing. Yeah, let's go see this. And so um, in verse 15, Luke chapter 2, verse 15, when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Then they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was a baby lying in the manger. So let's think about this for just a moment. Let's think about the importance of the visit of these shepherds, because this is not what you would have chosen, right? If you're going to create a story, if you're going to make up a story about something, you're not going to say, well, you know who the first person, that, the first people that came to see this baby was? It was a bunch of shepherds. The shepherds back then, they, they were, we would consider them the, the dregs of society. They were untrustworthy. In fact, it was, it was to the point that, that their um, testimony in a court of law was not um, seen to be valid. Like, they couldn't testify in court because no one would believe them. They were untrustworthy. They were dirty. They were smelly. They were not the ones that you would say would be the first ones to come and see the Messiah. So just the fact that that was what happened, to me, is a pretty good indication that it was really what happened. It's not something you would make up. And it makes it a very unique birth. Then we have something else that happened um, a few days later. And a man by the name of Simeon, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple, a man by the name of Simeon was there. And this is what the Bible tells us about Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, verse 25, at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, we can't skip over that because that's an important piece here. We know that now, one of the things that, that, that Scripture tells us is that the Holy Spirit indwells believers. They, they actually comes and, and he, he makes residence in you and he's there with you to help you, to guide you, to empower you. He's there with us all the time. Well, in the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. Um, there was an event that happened called the Day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came down, and then it was something that Jesus had talked about while he was alive, that the, that the Spirit was coming, the helper. He used different terms for that. That happened in the Day of Pentecost, and from then on, believers have the Holy Spirit with them all along. So before that happened we really only see a handful of people that are recorded in, in Scripture um, to have had the Spirit of the Lord upon them. Some of the names that you might recognize are Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samson, Saul, David, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. Those are some of the people that we have recorded in the Old Testament that had the Spirit come upon them. Usually it was temporary, for a short time, typically, to be able to complete a task or, or a set of tasks. It usually was not permanent. It was usually just temporary. Sometimes it happened multiple times to the same person throughout their life, but it would come and go. However, for Simeon, it seems that it was permanent, similar to believers after the day of Pentecost. And we're not really sure why, except for when it talks about how devout he was and how much he really followed God, if you can imagine how he lived his life, 
to be at the point where that happened for him. Here's something else we know about him in verse 26. The, and had, the Holy Spirit was a clump upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So the Holy Spirit had told Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. You will physically lay your eyes on the Messiah. That's pretty incredible. Imagine him and, and all of the excitement he had about that. You will not die until you've seen the Lord's Messiah. Verse 27, that day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, as you have promised. So he immediately recognized that Jesus was who he had been waiting for. He immediately recognized that this baby was the Messiah. Verse 30, I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what, he, at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. And we'll come back to that phrase in just a few minutes, a sword will pierce your very soul. So here we have Simeon, has been waiting for the Messiah his whole life, immediately recognizes this baby that's brought in is the Messiah. That's unique. That's different. Then we have this little thing that happened when, when uh, Jesus was born, that was that we, we call it a star. We'll talk about in just a moment what, what sort of options that might have been and what it could have been. But in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Verse 9, after this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. In verse 10, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. So we're not really sure what this um, sign or this star was that the uh, wise men, that the magi had seen. Um, some suggest it may have been a comet, because we know that it moved. However, comets don't typically stop over a certain place, and we know that this stopped over the place where the child was. So whatever this was moved, guiding them along, and then stopped over where Jesus was. Some have suggested that perhaps this was two or more planets converging in the sky to appear as one bright star. Sure, okay, that might have been what happened. Um, again, it moved and then stopped. Maybe this was a brand new heavenly body that was created specifically for this purpose, which is kind of what I lean towards myself. These guys were astronomers. They studied the skies. They would have known when a new um, star had, been, uh, had appeared. That was something they would have seen and recognized, so that's very possible. Maybe it was some sort of atmospheric phenomenon or maybe some other supernatural thing. We, we just don't know 
what this was. We just know that it was miraculous. It was there for the specific purpose of guiding them to where Jesus was. It stopped over the place where Jesus was. They recognized that as being something very significant. So one of the things that these magi would do um, would be to look for, the, for signs in the heavens. When, when a king was born, they would actually look for these signs. And so to them, seeing this new thing, whatever it was, it, to them indicated that a king had been born. Then they go and they actually visit Jesus. In, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, they entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, we'll come back to that in just a moment, too, the significance of specifically myrrh. But the Magi, just a little bit more about them, they were known as king makers. What they would actually do in, in, in some cultures, they would actually select, anoint, and crown the king. And so in some cultures, you didn't become king if the Magi didn't do all of that for you. So they were very important people, um, very significant in their culture, and they, would, they were known as king makers. If you want to find out more information about the Magi, um, a few years ago, about three years ago, I did a, sermon, I did a message on, on the visit of the Magi. That was the title of it, December 9th, 2018. If you go to faithcommunityfellowship.com forward slash messages, and you can find that there either by searching for the date or by the title or by the speaker. There's different ways you can search there. I went into a lot more detail about the Magi. I've always been fascinated with them, so um, you might want to check that out sometime. But they came, they were known as kingmakers, they came to see Jesus. So we know that the birth of Jesus was very significant, very unique, very different. But also his mission, his reason for being here on this earth was very different. We know that Jesus was born to die. That was the purpose for him coming. That's not the case for any of the rest of us, but the purpose for Jesus to be born was that he would someday die, and he would die for us. There were some things that happened um, in, his, in his life that foreshadowed that coming death, even around his birth. In Luke chapter 2, verse 35, we read this a few minutes ago, but when, when uh, Simeon told Mary, as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, a sword will pierce your very soul, that was a foreshadowing of Jesus' death, prophecy of that coming death, and telling Mary that she would suffer too. And we know that later in Scripture, the scene at the cross, we know that Mary was there and she was indeed suffering as she watched her son be killed. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, with the uh, Magi, they entered the house, saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, <clears throat> myrrh was, was <clears throat> something excuse me, that was used for anointing priests, it was used for anointing the tabernacle, and it was used for anointing kings. Um, it also was used as a beauty treatment. We see that in, in Esther chapter 2. And it also was used as an embalming mixture. In John chapter 19, we see that that's listed as one of the spices that are brought by the women to Jesus' tomb. So the Magi bringing the gift of myrrh 
to Jesus and presenting that to him was really doing two things. It was anointing him as the king. Remember, the Magi were king makers. They recognized that a king had been born. They were anointing him as king, and they were foretelling his death. So it was, a, it was a, a two purposes there for giving him that myrrh. Then we have a number of prophecies and foreshadowing of the, what the Messiah would suffer and, and how he would die in Scripture. We're not going to read these verses all, um, but we are told, for example, in, in Exodus chapter 12, Numbers that, um, chapter 9 and Psalm chapter 34, that no bones would be broken. We're told in Psalm 22 that he would be forsaken, scorned, and that they would gamble for his clothing. We're told in Psalm 41 that he would be betrayed by a close friend. We're told in Psalm 69 he would be given gall and vinegar to drink. We're told in Isaiah chapter 50 he would be mocked and abused. We know that from the time that he was born and all throughout his life, he was hailed as the Messiah. The Messiah always was going to sacrifice himself. That was always how it had to end. And so even from the very beginning of Christ's life, that foreshadowing of his death, that sacrifice was looming. Jesus was born in the shadow of the cross. And as we think about that this time of year, when we think about his birth, it's hard to think about that sometimes, but Jesus was born in the shadow of the cross. If I were to ask you, and you don't need to answer this out loud, but if I were to ask you, what is the most significant event in history? There's a lot of things that might come to your mind. There's a lot of significant events that have happened in history. A lot of significant events that have happened in the last few years. Um, But over history, a lot of significant events have, have happened. But the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most significant and important thing that has ever happened in history. Not creation, not not even the start of everything, not the fall of Rome, not World War I or World War II, not even the birth of Christ, which we're celebrating this time of year. It is the birth, I mean, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus that is the most significant event in history. History does not revolve around any of those other things. If history is the story of the relationship between God and human beings, which I think it is, then history revolves around the cross. History is the story of our relationship with God, and history revolves around the cross. So before Jesus was born, it was looking ahead at what was coming, ahead at the coming sacrifice. But after Jesus was born, and now we're looking back at that sacrifice. So everything turns on the cross. History revolves around that. And Christmas would not have the same meaning without the cross. Yeah, it would be fun. We'd be able to sing our songs and we'd be able to celebrate and give gifts, but it would not be the same if it didn't end on a cross. And then during the life of Jesus, there were a a bunch of times that this was foreshadowed, the coming sacrifice, the coming death. In his early years, he was under the shadow of death. We know that what happened in Matthew chapter 2 when when Herod tried to, was going to kill all the young um, male children two years old and younger, he was in danger. They had to flee to Egypt to escape that and for Jesus to be able to survive. So he was under the shadow of death even at the beginning of of his life. And I sometimes wonder, when did he know who he really was? Have you ever thought about that? 
When did Jesus understand who he was? Well, he would have been taught scripture from a young age. In fact, we know that at the age of 12, he was in the temple teaching the teachers, right? He was teaching them scripture. And I think at that point, he understood at least, at least to a point of who he actually was. But when did he actually understand who he was? And then as part of that, when did he understand that that means his life would end in the sacrifice and on the cross? Because that had to happen at some point. That realization had to happen as he grew up of understanding who he was and understanding where this all was headed. And then in his adult life and ministry, he said some things about himself that leads us to understand that he understood exactly what was happening and what was going to happen to him. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, after they gathered again in Galilee, Jesus told them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. The disciples were filled with grief. Again in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, many terrible things, excuse me, and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And then in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem, where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans, he will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him, but on the third day he will rise again. So those are some of the things that Jesus said about himself and understanding that he was that coming sacrifice, that the death on the cross was imminent. Others said some things about him too that understood and recognized who he was. In John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the Lamb of God is a sacrificial term. The Lamb was used for sacrifices. That was how that sins were taken care of and covered and, and um, dealt with in the Old Testament and up until this point, until Christ died. So calling him the Lamb of God, people would have understood what that was referring to, that he was a sacrifice. And then again in John chapter 1, verse 35 and 36, the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. Again, there's the sacrifice. There's the coming sacrifice. Even at the end of his life, as it drew near the time for him to die, and he recognized that that was coming, Jesus still resolutely worked towards that end. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I love how that says that, because it wasn't with fear and trembling and trepidation. It wasn't kicking and screaming, being dragged along. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He had a mission. He knew what his mission was. He was going to go and fulfill his mission. And then even the, the events that happened during the last week of his life, if you look at, for example, the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19, he gave specific instructions to his disciples of, on what to do. Same thing with the Last Supper in Luke chapter 22. He gave them specific instructions of how to set things up and where to go, all leading towards what was eventually going to be the cross. And then even in Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22, he put his mind 
to the mission that God gave him. And he gave in to God and what the Father's will for him was, um, even though he knew what was coming, he knew it was going to happen in the next few hours, he still willingly took that step. So we look at Jesus' life, and we realize that Jesus lived his life in the shadow of the cross. So he was born in the shadow of the cross. He lived his life in the shadow of the cross. Well, okay, but how about us? How can we, how do we live in the shadow of the cross? Well, we're at Christmas time. One of the things that we can do is if, if we really think about and, and listen to some of the carols that we sing, there's some, there's some things in there that talk about Jesus' sacrifice. For example, in the first Noel, uh, verse 4 of that says, Then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord that hath made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood mankind hath bought. Then in the carol, I wonder as I wander, I wonder as I wander out under the sky that Jesus my Savior did come for to die. For poor ornery people like you and like I, I wonder as I wander out under the sky. The holly and the ivy, there's a couple of phrases in there that says, the holly bears a berry as red as any blood, and Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ to do poor sinners good. The holly bears a bark as bitter as the gall, and Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ for to redeem us all. What child is this? A portion of that says, nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross he bore for me, for you. Hail, hail, the Savior comes, the babe, the son of Mary. And then in We Three Kings, we talked about myrrh earlier. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, heaven to earth replies. So even in some of our carols that we sing this time of year, there are those reminders of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. We celebrate his birth, and we should, but let's also remember where that ended. The manger's shadow is always a cross. Think about that for a moment especially this time of year. The manger's shadow is always a cross. Remember what Christmas is all about. The birth of Jesus, yes, which is important and something we should celebrate and think about, but more importantly, his coming sacrifice. What that birth meant, what his life ultimately led to, that's what really Christmas is all about. It's God putting his plan of redemption into action. It's taking that first step that would lead to the cross. And then if we can remember things throughout the year, not just at Easter or Christmas time, but all year long. John Piper had this to say, Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross. Cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. We sing a song here uh, sometimes called Lead Me to the Cross. And if, you, if you've ever really thought about some of those lyrics, Savior, I come, quiet my soul, remember. Redemption's hill where your blood was spilled for my ransom. 
everything I once held dear, I count it all as lost. Lead me to the cross where, where your love poured out. Bring me to my knees, Lord, I lay me down. Rid me of myself, I belong to you. Oh, lead me, lead me to the cross. One of the ideas that we see um, talked about in that song is surrender. Surrendering our life. That's another way that we can live under the shadow of the cross as we surrender our life to God. Um, you ever see those bumper stickers that say, God is my co-pilot? I mean, I, I understand what they're saying, and it's a, it's a good sentiment, but it's actually backwards. God's not our co-pilot. God should not be our co-pilot. God should be in charge. God should be the pilot. We're just along for the ride. Um, Francis Chan has this to say, a key to everything is surrender. To really come before the Lord and say, I will literally stay here as long as you want me to stay, or God, I will really go anywhere on the earth. That's a tough place to come to sometimes, that we want to be able to tell God, you can take me anywhere. You can do anything you want with me. We lay no claim on our life when we surrender. We lay no claim on it. We stop fighting for our own agenda. We all have goals and plans and hopes and dreams for our lives, and those are good things. We want to have goals and plans and hopes and dreams because if you aim for nothing, that's what you get. But we need to let go of our own agenda. And some of us have our lives planned out pretty detailed, right? Some of us more than others. Um, I'm 46 years old. I am at the point in my life where a lot of people hit a midlife crisis. And I, a while back, I told my wife that um, for my midlife crisis, I was going to respond to that by purchasing a Mustang convertible. <laughs> she told me that I can't plan my midlife crisis. I said, watch me. <laughs> so some of us have things planned out more than others. But we need to give up our own agenda. Stop fighting for our own agenda. Give up control. As we seek God's direction in our life and follow his leading, that often means that we get stretched and we get taken out of our comfort zone. And that's, that's a good thing. We need that to happen to us. So some things to keep in mind when we're thinking about surrender. We, we have no real control anyway, right? This idea of us controlling our life is really an illusion. We don't really have control. And this is a daily choice. It's not like you can just say one time, God, I'm giving it to you. It's a day-by-day -day decision, a day-by-day giving up of yourself and surrendering, a daily choice. And we have to remember that God is immeasurably good. We cannot say how good God is. We just can't. And we absolutely can trust him with everything. He is immeasurably good. We can trust him with everything. So we can live our life in the shadow of the cross. We said a few minutes ago that the manger's shadow is always a cross, and that is true. Sombering thought, sobering thought. The manger, the shadow of the manger is always a cross, but the cross is the greatest hope in the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for what you have brought to us this morning, the message that you have given us. We thank you for the idea and the fact that your life was started in the shadow of the cross, it was lived in the shadow of the cross, 
and our lives can also be lived in the shadow of the cross. As we think about this time of year, we celebrate your birth, and we should, but help us to also remember where that birth ultimately led. Help us also to remember this time of year that the cross was there, and the cross is the greatest hope in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.